Chad and Jay Mansbridge here, lead pastors of Bayside Church International, based here on the south coast of South Australia. Our great passion as a church is to help people to know Jesus and to demonstrate His love, truth and life in everything that we do. We hope you enjoy today's message. If you don't know me, my name is Chad and I have the pleasure and privilege of being part of uh, this church family and of course the leadership group here as well, so a very big welcome to all of you today. It's a special day uh, for a number of reasons, but uh, one of the things we're going to do today is continue on with our series. We kicked off uh, 2021 with a new series that we've simply called Journeys in Joy and Peace. It was inspired by a number of prophetic words that God spoke to us, something a bit of a theme uh, to kick off the year and a number of biblical texts or verses that encapsulate that. The first, uh, something God spoke to us quite strongly last year from Nehemiah chapter 8, which says, The something of the Lord is our strength. Fill in the gap. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Something of a theme for last year in 2020. We needed quite a bit of strength last year, and so being warned about that, uh, the joy was something we needed to draw on, was very important to us as we headed into this year, 2021. Of course, everyone's bandering around John 2021 where Jesus says to his disciples, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Now go in peace. And so we've brought these two things together, joy and peace, which we find in Isaiah 55, where God says to his people, My people will be led forth in joy, and they will go out in peace. And while each of these verses, obviously, has their own historical background and, and backdrop, and we explain that, on the first day of this series, and they've spoken to God's people at different points in time in biblical history. They each carry the same theme. That God, to those who God has called and who cooperate in follow, following Him and walking with Him, God promises His joy and peace on the journey. God invites us to journey with Him. And one of the things He grants us or gifts us or promises us on the journey is joy and peace. And even at times when that journey takes us through the valley of the shadow of death. Because God's journeys don't necessarily mean no struggle. It's not all tiptoe through the tulips. Life is pain, Highness. Highness. But on the journey, God promises us his joy and peace because joy and peace is not dependent upon the phase of the journey that we're in. Joy and peace is not dependent upon the circumstances surrounding us. Joy and peace is one of the promises of God that he has given us and they are there for the taking. And to that we say, Amen. And so a few weeks ago when I started this series, one of the things I wanted to do was to take you back to the Exodus story, the Exodus motif, if you like, the great epic tale of God's uh, release of his people from Egypt uh, is a great story of journey. And it becomes what we term uh, part of the meta-narrative of Scripture, where the Exodus story is something that in the future, as you walk through... Where's the stage left? Over here. As God explains the story of the Exodus in this part of our Bible, as the story of the Bible continues, prophets look back and they recount this story as they speak to their generation. Uh, psalmists, as they write their psalms, look back to the Exodus and ask people to remember those. And they use the Exodus as a motif to explain how God works, what journey with God looks like. 
Look at the Exodus. Remember, this is how journey with God looks like. The apostles as well do it in the New Testament. They look back to the Exodus and they say, this is how basically stuff works. Okay? It looks like the Exodus. And basically, the story of the Exodus at the start of the Bible is designed to point us towards an even greater Exodus at the end of the Bible. And so Moses, in this part of biblical history, says just before he dies, Deuteronomy 18, I think it is, he says, watch out, because sometime in the future, there's going to be another Moses coming. Another prophet, capital P, just like me, but much better. Same, same, but superior. Watch out for him, because at some point in the future, this new Moses is going to come, and you better pay attention when he comes. Isaiah and other prophets, Isaiah 11.11, really easy one to remember, talks about a second exodus happening some point in the future. What God did back here with his people. So at some point in the future, he's going to do it some time again. And so this motif, uh, as we know, the book of Origins, the first part of our Bible, are not just history books, they are prophetic books. Because God makes known the end way back in the beginning. In the beginning, he tells stories that explain what's going to happen at the end of biblical history. And as biblical history unfolds, God's really clever like that. He knows what he's doing. Had the book before it was written. Okay, He knew what was coming. So this is part of the importance of the Exodus motif. And on that day, basically, I had one preacher's point, which I'm going to have today, because already some of you are switching off. Meta-narrative, well, that's a big word. And then one point that day basically came from Exodus, no, it didn't, it came from Ephesians chapter 6 that says in the gospel, the gospel of peace has come to us. The good news of Jesus has come to us. And with that gospel comes a wardrobe. And one of the items in that wardrobe is shoes, basically, that God fits to our feet and that they are the shoes of readiness. That when the gospel of peace comes to us, it equips us to be ready to act anytime God says. You see, just like the Exodus generation, God has come to us in Jesus to an undeserving people. To a people who basically weren't looking for him, don't deserve him, not honouring. God comes to them, rescues them, saves them and says, I'm at peace with you. I've got good news of peace to proclaim to you. Things are going to be okay between you and me. God announces peace over undeserving people, those who were his enemies at the time. And with that gospel of peace, when we are grounded in that gospel, it equips us to say, I'm ready to do whatever that God tells me to do. Because he, by the way, is a really good God. He's not just a great God. He is a good God and he's a generous God. So I'm ready to go where he says to go, to do what he says to do, to speak what he says to speak, to give what he says to give, to sacrifice what he says to sacrifice, to uh, journey with him. My feet are ready to go because I'm grounded in the gospel of peace. Okay, Our feet are fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace that we have received. That was my one point that day. My one point today is simply this. Because some of you, that's all you can handle. So I'll just give you one point and then you can switch off. Okay, It's really simple. My one point today is this, on this long weekend public holiday. In God's wisdom... In order to ensure that his people would constantly, as they journeyed with him, in order to ensure that they would draw on his joy and draw on his peace, God told his people, God commanded his people to celebrate a whole bunch of public holidays. He told them 
You must rest because you need peace for the journey. He told them, you must set aside time to celebrate because you're going to need joy for the journey. And for us to ongoingly draw on the joy and the peace of God that he promises us, it is imperative, it is incumbent upon us to carve out time to rest and to carve out time to rejoice. To carve out time in our life to stop and to carve out time to celebrate. To carve out time to lie low and to carve out time to live loud. To carve out time in our week, in our year to just chill. And to carve out time to thrill. That's the best I could do. I didn't... I see, see what I'm trying, to, I'm trying to do there? To carve out time, to turn it off. And to carve out time to turn it up, baby, and celebrate with all our might. To carve out time to fast and to carve out time to feast. What's the one point I want to leave you with today? God's wisdom as revealed in the commands of the Old Testament to have public holidays. His wisdom behind that is that we would find time, make time, carve out is the word I've chosen to use today, carve out time to both rest and rejoice. And God's wisdom in that still stands because for us to endure the race with joy and peace, it takes sometimes focused time to be happy and to have fun. And it takes focused time to just chill out and rest. And the internal God knew this when he established the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. That's your point today. We'll close our eyes if you want to go home and you've got your practical thing. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, now that you're still here, I need to elaborate a little bit more on that, okay? So that's my preacher's hat. I'm now going to put my Bible teacher hat on. And what I want to look at today is everyone's favorite book in the Bible, the book of Leviticus. Come on, come on. I often call Leviticus a big, bloody book of rules and ritual and regulations. Okay, well, that's what the book of Leviticus is, everyone's favourite. And, of course, everyone's favourite chapter in uh, the book of Leviticus is chapter 23. So if you have your Bible, why don't you turn there? This is an entire chapter dedicated in this part of biblical history, the Exodus generation. Okay, this is what Moses is writing to these people. The word Leviticus means concerning the Levites. Um, the, what the priests were to do and how the priests, the Levite priests were to lead God's people. So we often call the book of Leviticus Leviticus. Hmm? Okay, easy to remember. So it's about how God's people under this period of history were to operate. Well, we have the book of Leviticus and uh, Moses here is writing down instructions for God's people in this period of history. You still with me? Let's go. Leviticus chapter 23. The Lord Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, These are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. Not a word you use every day. Holy convocations. They are my appointed feasts. Some of your Bibles might say appointed festivals. Uh, some more literal translations simply say appointed times. These are the appointed times 
that I want you to set aside. And basically the word there for appointed time, incidentally, the first time we see it is in Genesis chapter 1 in the creation story on day 4, verse 14. Slow down, Jack. In Genesis 14, 1, 14, on day 4, God has objects in the sky and he says, these shall serve as signs to mark out the appointed times. Days and months and years, but the appointed times. So basically, one of the ancient Hebrew mindset is that God, these aren't big balls of gas in the sky. The reason we have the moon, okay, the reason we have the sun, is so that we know when a new day starts. Duh. The reason that we have a moon is so that we know when a new month starts. And God has given us these heavenly bodies to tell us when the appointed times Ah, okay, when these appointed times of worship. Now, for you and me, basically, when we look at a, a, a year, uh, we operate on what's known as a solar calendar and something specifically called the Gregorian calendar. It tells us that uh, basically the earth goes around the sun every 365.25 days. Yes? So every fourth year, thanks to Julius Caesar in 64 BC, he said, well, let's have an, uh, an extra day one year to make sure that that retains its uh, consistency. Well, back in the ancient world, the Hebrews, they did not operate on a solar way of thinking. They took their calendar basically from the moon. And what they would do is that they knew that every time there was a new moon, that meant a new month. Okay, because the moon's going around the earth. Okay, and so as the moon basically gets in between us and the sun, that is the start of a new month. And you can barely see it. Okay, it happens in the daytime, strictly speaking, when they're right there. But as, as the sun sets that day, then the new moon is seen. And because the sun is there backing it, basically, there is only the smallest slither of moon that you can see. And that's when they knew, aha, a new month has started. And under a lunar calendar, that happens approximately every 29.5 days. And because so many of you are good at math, you know that when you add up 29.5 days over 12 months, it only adds up to 354 days. So you're 11 days short in a year. So what they had to do is they had to give a whole leap month every few years and uh, they had to add a whole extra month to catch up with what the sun was doing. Doesn't that make, isn't that why you came to church today to learn about this kind of stuff? Yeah, it's great. So that's a, what's the point, Chad? For those of you visiting, every now and again, just say, what's the point? What's the point? The point is, the ancient Hebrews operated on a lunar calendar. They understood these things were to tell us when there was a new day and a new appointed time. A new moon was really important in that. And so they had uh, God, basically, in their understanding, gave the purpose. One of the purposes of the sun, moon, and stars was to show them when they were to worship, when their appointed festivals were. Apparently, they didn't have you know, Google Calendar or whatever back in those days. And so what we have here is appointed times. We also have this funny word here in this verse of Leviticus 23 where it says, these are holy convocations. Holy convocations. This isn't a word that you're going to use very often. Okay? But it basically means an assembly or a gathering, a public get-together. And sometimes it means a reading. Or, get this, a rehearsal. These are the times for a public rehearsal. Well, that's a funny time. Basically, it means that these are set times for the community to get together and rehearse something. 
to go through something. What does the rehearsal do? Our rehearsal points to something that's going to happen in the future. Our rehearsal points to the main act that's going to be coming at some point down the line. And of course, we know that that main act to come, they went through the rehearsal, but the main act is Jesus. Okay, if you're visiting, the answer to any question I ask is Jesus, okay? The main act is Jesus. And so Jesus comes along in John chapter 5. Okay, and he says to the religious people, he says, you search the whole Bible because you think that if you knew the scriptures, you'll have eternal life. But no, 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 no. The Bible that you have points to me. The Old Testament scriptures point to me. Look at me. Look at me, says Jesus. Okay, it's pointing to me. Uh, Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew, he says, listen, don't come to think that I've come to do away with the law of Moses or the writing of the prophets. No, 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 no. I have come to accomplish their purpose. The, Moses' law, and part of it is these festivals. They, they were rehearsing for something. They had a purpose. And I've come to be that purpose. I've come to fulfill, some translations say, what the law has been saying all along. Another way to put this is for Jesus to say, I am the substance of which this part of the Bible is a shadow. Jesus is here all the time. Nobody knew it. But Jesus is here in real life, casting a shadow on the pages of the Old Testament. And so as the Old Testament people were reading the law, all they had was a shadow. It was a rehearsal pointing them toward Jesus. And, and, and Paul the Apostle makes this crystal clear in the book of Colossians where he says, let no one pass judgment on you, the Christian community, in regards to food and drink or with regard to a festival, a new moon or a Sabbath. Let no one judge you according to the Hebrew holidays. Okay, because these things are just a shadow of the things that were to come. The substance belongs to Christ. The substance belongs to Christ. And so, as we examine these feasts somewhat, briefly, as we examine these feasts, we are basically going through a study of what is known as, I guess, typology. Might be the best way to say it. There is a type in the Old Testament that points towards the substance or the, quote, anti-type in the New. And that's basically what the whole chapter of Leviticus 23 is concerned with. Next verse, verse 3. Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. After all, it is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places, which basically means no matter where you live. Many of you are acquainted with this. This is basically the weekly Sabbath. It happens every Every week. Okay, yeah, well done. You're tracking with me nicely. It happens every week. And the word in Hebrew, Shabbat, basically just means stop. That's what it means. The verb, anyway. It means stop, desist, cease. Okay, cease. It's Saturday. What's that? It's cease day. Okay, stop. God is telling his people, I want you to stop. I want you to stop. And observing the weekly Sabbath was pretty simple. Basically, you just stop work on Saturdays, lay off the labor. And with this command, of course, came the grace to fulfill it, the provision to say, you need to trust me. I'm telling you to rest, but I'm showing you something. It's okay 
that you don't think all of life's provision revolves around you. I'm telling you to rest and with that, watch how I provide for you. Sabbath was therefore not a heavy burden. Uh, Later in biblical history, particularly in the lead up to when Jesus came, some people made it a heavy burden. Okay, and religious people particularly, they're really good at this, adding a whole bunch of restrictions for that day. But it was not intended to be a heavy burden. It was intended to be a gift. And particularly in the ancient world where you had to work really hard just to survive, having a day off was an absolute gift. And God wasn't suggesting it. God was commanding it. It was very serious. In fact, in the Old Testament, basically, if you did not stop working, the penalty imposed upon you was death. Okay, a bit serious. God's really serious about this rest thing. No, no, no. Because this picture of Shabbat, this picture of Sabbath, had more than just good advice. This picture was a prophetic picture, remember. It was a prophetic shadow pointing towards a far superior reality coming up. And God didn't want his people to stuff up the shadow. Because one day in the future, I'm going to preach a message to you. And I'm going to say, the book of Hebrews, Jesus is your Sabbath. And if you lose track of it along the way, that message ain't going to mean much to you. So you better make sure you obey it because I've seen the full script. Thank you very much. And I know what's coming in the future. God was very serious about his people keeping this rest day, a day to stop and a day to rest. In fact, as many of you know, it was more than just a Sabbath day. Every seven years, I would have a whole year off, a Sabbath year every seventh year. It's basically God's way of saying, listen, where I guide, I will provide. I guide, I provide. Sabbath was a way of God preaching the gospel in advance. Preaching the gospel in advance and saying, I will give to those who rest. What does Paul say in the book of Romans? Chapter 4. He said God's gift of righteousness, specifically there, is given to those who rest. When you work, you get paid. But when you rest, you get a gift. Jesus is our Sabbath. In regards to our relationship with God, um, in this part of history, it was dependent upon you observing one day a week. Absolutely, you better or you're in big trouble. But in the New Testament, that is fulfilled in Jesus. As regard to our relationship with God, Jesus is our Sabbath rest. In fact, it's really fascinating as you read through the New Testament of all the Ten Commandments. There's ten of them. Of all the Ten Commandments, nine of them are rewritten in the New Testament. God first, don't have idols, don't rob, honour your father and your mother, blah, blah, blah. Nine of them are rewritten, but number four is not. It's the only command that is not reimposed, so to speak, upon the new covenant community because Jesus is our Sabbath rest. Chad, what's the point? We can still glean wisdom from God's commands even if they are not ours to obey today. Every command of God, no matter how obscure, no matter how gross some of them, and there are some pretty grotesque some of them, every command has God's wisdom behind it. My point to you today as a preacher and pastor is to say carve out time in your weekly planner to stop. Stop, stop, stop. Rest and enjoy Peace.
Amen. As you read through the rest of Leviticus, basically it lists chronologically, which I love, because I think that like that, it lists seven annual feasts. Okay, these are seven annual feasts, not weekly, but they're to be done basically once a year, in case you didn't know what annual meant. And it starts here in verse 5 by saying a very familiar uh, concept here. It says, In the first month, on the 14th day of the moon, of, tw- of the month of twilight, at twilight, sorry, it is the Lord's Passover. It is the Lord's Passover. Now we know in the uh, Exodus, the original Passover began the journey of God's people with him. It began their journey. And not only that, but God said, this month of the Passover begins your new year. They were given a new calendar at this time. God said, the month that this happens is going to be your new year. Forget what the Egyptians are doing. This is your new year. And so basically, the Hebrew calendar looks a little bit different to ours. If we're going to compare them, it might look something like this. Uh, Here we go on some PowerPoint stuff. This here is the first Month of the year, Nisan, which for us falls around about March and April. Now, why is it around about? Well, why is it around about? You live in Victor Harvey, you ask that a lot. Why is it around about? Um, the point is, why is it around about? Because lunar and solar are different. And so it's always out. That's why Easter, Passover, this one we're looking at, which is in this month, sometimes is in mid-March and sometimes is at the end of April. It's like... Get with the program. Well, the moon calendar and the sun calendar are different. The days don't add up exactly. So the sun is around about March and April. It's the springtime and you can see that. So here we go. This is Passover, the very first festival. Effectively what happened is on the 10th day of that month, they were to take a male lamb, you know this, a year old, observe it for imperfections until the 14th day of that month and then at twilight, which literally means between the evenings, they say in the late part of the afternoon, they were to kill that lamb. In the Exodus, basically one lamb for one family, where they killed it, by the time of the temple, there were thousands of families. Thousands of people would come to the temple. They'd have to shut the doors. And first in best dress, they'd have people in three groups and they would slaughter lambs all day from nine to three by the thousands. Absolutely gross. Um, we don't have any video of that, so that's probably a pretty good thing. And of course, they needed to be done by three o'clock because by 6 p.m., the next day was the Shabbat day special Sabbath day. So they needed to make sure they rested at six. They had this three-hour window to make sure that they had the Passover lamb killed and they could clean up all their mess or cook the lamb so that by six o'clock, Shabbat. Six o'clock, Shabbat. The evening of the 15th day was a special Sabbath of unleavened bread and we'll get into that. And Chad, what is the point of that? Well, what does this feast, this rehearsal point to in the future? It's always the answer. Come on. This rehearsal points to Jesus who came into Jerusalem. Oh, he's over here. He came into Jerusalem on the 10th day of the sun, riding on a donkey. For four days, from the 10th to the 14th, he was observed by the chief priests, by the elders, by Pilate, by Herod, and by the crowd, washed his hands and said, we've observed this man. There is nothing false in him he is sinless said Pilate nevertheless the people demanded his execution on the 14th day of the month from 9 in the morning to 3 in the afternoon he died on the cross the exact time 
that in the temple, Passover lambs were being slaughtered. He dies at three in the afternoon when the final Passover lamb was being slaughtered by the high priest. And then suddenly the people had three hours to clean up the mess and get him into a tomb because at 6 p.m. they had to get him off the cross. And that's why they say the next day is a special Sabbath. We need to get this guy down. Jesus fulfills the picture of Passover, not only in the fact that he was male and that he was faultless and there are no bones in his broken and all those things. He fulfills it to the day, to the hour, on the time as he hung there as the Passover lamb. The Old Testament picture was a reminder of God's deliverance from a physical enemy called Egypt. The New Testament antitype, the, the substance of Jesus, is Jesus paying the price for our deliverance from the enemy known as sin and death. And as afternoon came, they wrapped him, they put him away because the very next day was a special Sabbath day, the start of what is known as unleavened bread. Unleavened bread. So the next one that comes up in the festival. Let's have a look at that. Unleavened bread is basically a seven-day festival. There it is. And it, it happens really close. I mean, basically Passover. Passover itself, that day, is not a rest day because you have to prepare stuff. You have to get stuff ready. Okay, It is a work day. Uh, that's a, a normal day, the 14th. But unleavened bread kicks in at 6 p.m. And for seven days, God's people were commanded to rest. And the idea of this lasting seven days may have something to do with the fact of the duration that it took for God's people to get out of Egypt. Okay, Passover happens that night. As soon as the, uh, in that night time, as the destruction of the firstborn happens, they need to get out of Egypt quick smart. And they didn't get to the Red Sea the next day. Okay, the Red Sea was, uh, depends on where you think they crossed, but hundreds of kilometers away. Okay, so it's probably a good week or so traveling through the desert. That's why Pharaoh followed them, followed after a while. Okay, but night and day they traveled as God had this pillar of light and, and, and cloud by day and all that sort of stuff. And he led them and they followed. And what were they doing? They were distancing themselves from Egypt. The price was paid to free them from Egypt's bondage. But unleavened bread was about distancing themselves from the influence of Egypt. Because unleavened bread is all about taking what we call yeast. There's no such thing as yeast back in those days, but sourdough. They, they, by getting the influence of Egypt out of their home. Okay, Yeast is a picture of influence. It can be good or bad in the Bible. You can have the yeast of the Pharisees, bad. You can have the yeast of the kingdom, good. Okay, it Basically, it means influence. And so they had to get rid of the influence of Egypt from their life and put a distance between themselves and Egypt as they started their journey on with God. The Passover lamb saved them, but unleavened bread was about remembering how there was now a distance between them and the influence of Egypt. And so Paul will say this in the New Testament to the Corinthians. He says, your boasting, 1 Corinthians 5 verse 6, is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast, only a little, leavens the whole batch of dough? So what I want you to do is get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new unleavened batch, which is what you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Jesus is the lamb and we are the new loaf. We are the new loaf, free from the influence of Egypt. Therefore, he says, let us keep the festival. 
in a way. Not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Let us be true to who we are now that he has set us free from the power of Egypt. The point of this holiday for a week long was to stop and remember we are not of Egypt. And that Egypt has no power over us and no place in our life. It is a way to make a healthy assessment of one's sanctification. To say, I am like Jesus. I am. But I want to be like Jesus. The unleavened loaf that you are, he says, now be that. I am like Jesus. And I want to be like Jesus. See, one of the things that is guaranteed to rob our joy and peace as we journey in life is not being consistent with who you are. When, you, when we are not living authentically, when we are not living lives of authenticity, you can use that. When we are not living lives of authenticity, when we are not living as we are, an unleavened loaf, it robs us of our joy and peace, which is why malice does not belong in your life. Okay, jealousy does not suit you. Okay, uh, you know, stinginess doesn't suit you. Deception doesn't suit you. These things, do, immorality doesn't suit you. And it will rob you of the joy and peace that God has planned for us. Now, Egypt will always be there. And in the story of the Exodus, Egypt chases them down. Which is where we come to the third special day on this calendar to commemorate the crossing of the Red Sea into a new form of life. It's known as the Day of First Fruits. The Day of First Fruits. Now, this day basically fell on a Sunday during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Whichever day in that week was a Sunday, first day of the week, on the first day of the week, they celebrated the first of their crops from their first harvest, which was barley. Okay, so basically here in winter, they would plant all their crops. The first one to start getting ready to harvest was the barley harvest. And the idea was they were to take before they ate anything. They were to take the first and bring it to God as a great day of joy and celebration. It happened on the first day of the week. It was a holy day to worship God and to say, God, you are first because you've given us a new beginning. Now, what happened on the first day of the week in the first century, in, in the year 30, when Jesus was around? What happened on the first day of that week? Jesus did what on the first day of the week? What, did, what happened to Jesus on Sunday? Oh, gee, thanks, guys. Jesus, Easter's coming. We, we'll, uh, I'll ask you after April. On the Sunday of unleavened bread, Jesus rose from the dead. It was the first day. As God's people, as the Old Testament people were bringing their first fruits, saying there is a new beginning, a new beginning, Jesus rose on that very same day to the day Jesus fulfilled this picture of new beginnings. Beginning, beginning, beginning. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, he spells this out explicitly. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. He is the first fruits of those 
who have fallen asleep. He is the first of those who would be brought into resurrection life. Isn't God clever? And so here we have, back to the calendar, we have these first three situations happening basically back to back, all within uh, a span of a week's time, these three appointed times. Well, seven days later, we come into another festival. They would account seven weeks, which basically took them into the month of Savannah. Let's have a look at that one. This one is known, basically, it's not really given a name, so it's known as the Festival of Weeks. Okay, because it's seven weeks later. The Hebrew word is Shavot. You may have heard that. Uh, the Greek name for this festival is Pentecost, the number 50. Okay, it's Pentecost. Sometimes it's known as Harvest. This also was a Sunday. Okay, another Sunday, another long weekend event. Remember, they had Saturday off, and this happened on Sunday, which makes it a long weekend. Okay, so they had a long weekend for the festival of Weeks again, and this was a great day of joy and celebration. This one had a party atmosphere. Deuteronomy uh, 16 says this is the time to celebrate before the Lord your God. They were to bring other offerings. This time their wheat was ready to uh, be harvested around this time at the end of spring. And so what they do, they wouldn't bring wheat, but they would get their wheat and they'd make two loaves of bread. And they would bring the two loaves of bread to the priest and he'd wave it before the Lord. I don't know exactly how that, that worked, okay? But he did a special waving ceremony with his two loaves of bread uh, from the uh, wheat that they had made. And it also, the tradition from the Hebrew people tells us that it was on this day that God gave the law to his people at Sinai. Okay, 50 days after the crossing of the Red Sea, after their new life began, okay, that new beginning, after that, they come and they are at the Mount Sinai and God gives them the law. Well, the typology here is fairly easy to decipher. On the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, there was a great harvest of wheat, a great harvest of souls. Jesus talks about souls being harvested as wheat. There were two loaves of bread in that wheat, Hebrew people and non-Hebrew people. Presented to the Lord that day as the gospel went out. It's two bodies of people together as an offering for God. And of course, that day was the day in Acts chapter 2 where the law was not given on stone, but the law was written on the hearts of men. And so men and women, a new covenant was given that day on the day of Pentecost. On the exact day in AD 30, Jesus began to fulfill these rehearsals that have been practiced for years. Passover, God delivered us from Egypt, separated us, unleavened bread, gave us new resurrection life through the waters of the sea and we came and we were given a law. Well, now Jesus comes and shows substance to that. He rescues his people from sin and death, separating them from the ways of the Egyptians, giving resurrection life and the promise of a new covenant in the hearts of men. God is pretty clever. God is pretty clever and he matches these times perfectly. These festivals of dress rehearsals pointing to the reality in Christ, his death for our deliverance and his resurrection. His resurrection for our recreation as a new covenant community. Isn't the Bible interesting? Wheels within wheels. Brings us to the last feast. We'll move through these at a different pace. These ones basically happen during autumn. The first one 
uh, down here, number five, is the day of trumpets. Okay, the day of trumpets. This was basically the first day of the seventh month, the month of Tishri, another public holiday. It didn't matter what day it was. You don't know what day of the week it's going to be. It's just the first day of the seventh month. Whichever day of the week that is, doesn't matter. It's the first day of the seventh month. And basically this was commemorated by the blowing of trumpets. There's a whole bunch of offerings thrown in there for good measure. Uh, of course, as there always was. And what makes this one particularly interesting is that it's the only festival to start or to happen, it's the only appointed day that was to take place on the first day of the month. Now, why is that interesting? Because as I explained at the start, see, I haven't wasted any information, coming back, as I explained at the start, these people didn't have a Sasko war planner. They didn't know when the first day of the month was going to be. They had to watch for the new moon that small slither in the sky. They knew approximately 29.5 days when the new month would start, but nobody knew the day or the hour. Nobody knew the exact day or the exact hour when the new moon would be seen. And to make sure that they didn't miss it, in Israel they would appoint watchmen around the place just in case there was bad weather, cloud cover, rain, a bad day. They wanted to make sure that they would see that new moon when it came. So they'd send a message to the Sanhedrin and say, there's two witnesses testifying. Today's the day of the new moon. Start blowing the darn trumpets. Today is the day. And they had to be, because they never knew when it was going to come. They had to be on alert. Had to be on alert. It could be today. could be tonight. Let's watch. Let's watch. Let's be careful. It could be now. No one knows the day. No one knows the time. It's the first of the month, but no one knows when it's going to happen. Just be ready. Because the day of trumpet blowing it's coming soon. We're just not sure when. Now, the prophetic fulfillment of this day, there are some things that make a lot of sense, but in these last three feasts, they're not quite as easy to nail down precisely. Because these last three feasts, the New Testament alludes to them, but it doesn't specifically nail the detail of these feasts. And so there is debate and discussion and dialogue and disagreement as to exactly what the fulfilment of these is, whether it has happened, whether it is yet to happen. These are things that are discussed because they're not exactly clear in the pages of the New Testament. But it is likely that it has something to do the trumpet blast has something to do with reward for the righteous and judgment on the wicked. And there's many pictures in the New Testament of a trumpet blast being a reward for the righteous. Matthew 24, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians 4. But at the same time, there's also a lot of texts that talk about a trumpet blast being on judgment on a wicked nation or city. So one of the obvious examples of that is Jericho in Joshua. What happens when the trumpets were blasted? It's good if you're one of God's people. It's an awesome day. But if you live in Jericho, not so good. It's a bit of a bittersweet day, depending on whose team you're on. Okay? So, and so as the Old Testament prophets, when they talk about a sounding of a trumpet, sometimes it's judgment, sometimes it's quite negative. The ultimate example of this, of course, is in Revelation, where the trumpets are blasted, all seven trumpets are blasted, a bit like Jericho, seven trumpets, and Babylon falls down, and a whole bunch of people rejoice. But if you're living in Babylon, not so good. Not so good. 
So it's a bit of a bit of a sweet thing, depending on whose team you're on. And the rest of the feast in this autumn time are a little bit like that as well. The next one, after trumpets, is another week-long celebration. Uh, no, it's not. It's a special day, and it's called the Day of Atonement. Does anyone know what the Hebrew word for Day of Atonement is? Yom Kippur. Okay, Yom Kippur in the Hebrew. Uh, is the Day of Atonement. It's basically, Yom Kippur means a covering. Okay, It happened on the 10th day of that month. Again, doesn't matter what day of the week it is, as long as it's the 10th day, that's the main thing that happened. And it was a special Sabbath day, a public holiday, a long weekend, that day as well. And it's a day of fasting. In fact, it is the only day where everyone was mandated to fast. And again, God took this so seriously that a little, little bit like the weekly Shabbat, if you did not fast on that day, off with your head. Okay, death penalty stuff. It's really important that you fast on the Day of Atonement. It is the most solemn day on the Hebrew calendar. Once a year, it was the only day that access was granted to the most holy place of God's presence in the temple. The priest, as you know, would have to go through an extensive bathing ritual in order to get in there. And the high priest during that ritual would basically separate two goats. One would be sent away, declared sinful. The other would be granted privilege, so to speak, to enter the temple. Granted the privilege, the lifeblood of that goat could actually go all the way to the most holy place. Is it possible also? This is a sign of a judgment, bittersweet element to it, not 100% sure. But the point is this, is the high priest was to go beyond the curtain. They would see him go into the curtain and then they'd wait for him. When's he coming back? When's he coming back? We saw him go in and we're waiting to see him come out again. Now the book of Hebrews talks about this day, the day of atonement, and it doesn't describe Jesus as being uh, the goat. It describes Jesus in this context of being the high priest. Jesus is the high priest that goes in to the most holy place. And of course, the Old Testament prophets associate this language with the coming of the messianic kingdom. Again, discussion around that as to the fulfillment in Jesus of that day. And last, we have lucky number seven. No, not lucky number seven. Complete number seven. We have a week-long festival called booths this is the grand finale it is also known as tabernacles okay booths or tabernacles the hebrew is sukkot and it is mentioned more than any other feast in the bible feast of ingathering as well and it's, as you can see down here it's basically we're starting autumn it is the basically the last harvest feast all the harvesting in this agricultural society has been done they've got their barley up here at the start of uh, at Savan, they've got their barley there. They've got all their wheat uh, done. Oh, no, that's, that's the wheat there. They've got the barley here, the wheat there. And all summer, their fruit's growing. So by the end of this time, they've pressed their grapes. They've got new wine to drink. Okay, They've got their figs. They've got all their fruit. This celebrates the end of harvest season. Uh, harvest season and it is a week-long party of joyous celebration with two Sabbaths involved in it in fact the people were commanded to rejoice 
Most of this time, I've been telling you that people are commanded to rest. Shabbat. Shabbat. I just thought of that. That sounds like stop it, doesn't it? Stop it. Shabbat. Shabbat. Okay, rest. This week, they are told, rejoice. You better rejoice. Seven days, party. It's not a good idea. You're commanded to party. Okay, I'm telling you. God says, you need to party for seven days. A great number of sacrifices and offerings were given at the temple. There was eating, there was drinking, music, constant celebration. The full moon, it's halfway through the month. So the full moon lighting up the sky, they're outdoors. It had a real festival occasion to it. God says to them in Deuteronomy 16 verse 15, he says, this festival will be a happy time of celebrating. For seven days, you must celebrate this festival to honor the Lord your God at the place he chooses. For it is he who blesses you with bountiful harvest and gives you success in all your work. This festival will be a time of great joy for all. Solemn, solemn, joyful. Fast, fast, feast. Both are important to God. Both are important. This is the time of great joy. And by the time of the first century, in the days of Jesus, with the temple that they had, they'd created a few extra little ceremonies that aren't mentioned in the Bible, but we see them in intertestamental period in the times of Jesus. One of the things they'd used to do at the temple is they'd have this elaborate water ceremony where they'd be pouring water. They would draw water from the pool of Siloam. Uh, from the pool of Bethesda. They'll be drawing water and pouring it out. Of course, they're looking forward to their winter. So this became a part of praying for rain, Okay, a water ceremony. The other thing that the rabbis talk about, you can read it in the Mishnahs. I did some of that yesterday. It's awesome. They had this big light ceremony. The whole place was lit up. They had four massive menorahs in the court of women in the temple that were burning constantly. Hundreds of gallons of oil burning these things. They had four massive flames each. Plus the priests are out there. They were doing uh, torch dances okay, with their long robes, doing torch dances, walking down the steps, doing a different psalm. Every time they went down the steps, there was music, drinking, dancing, torches. The whole place was lit up with light. The rabbi said, if you have not seen the light festival, you have no idea what celebration is about. It was such a joyous time. And that gives us profound context. When John 7 tells us that it was at this feast, Jesus dared to get up and say, I'm the light of the world. No, 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 Jerusalem's the light. No, no, no. Jerusalem is, I'm the light of the world. And it's only those who walk by my light that will live forever. It was at this festival, the last day of the feast, as they were pouring, pouring out this big water ceremony, water libation, looking forward to rain. God, we need rain. We need rain for the next year. Pouring out water. God, you provide us with the rain we need. And Jesus gets up and says with a loud voice on the last day of the feast, come to me, all ye who thirst. Anyone who's thirsty, they need to come to me and drink because I am the water of eternal life. That's the context. The celebration was taking place when Jesus said those words. And the reason it's called booths or tabernacles is because they'd also have a little bit of fun at this time of year, even though they were living in their own homes at this stage. Obviously, they're in the promised land. God said, I want you to pitch some tents. 
I want you to make some temporary coverings and get the kids outside. And basically for seven days, you're to sleep outdoors. Okay, it's nice weather. Get out there. Okay, get out. So uh, they'd be sleeping out in booths and sleeping out. And this was their way of remembering. Do you remember when our ancestors back here were in the desert and they had temporary accommodation? Thank God we now have an eternal home, an eternal home called Jerusalem, an eternal promised land. Tabernacles speaks of the final harvest, which again is bittersweet because it talks about the final judgment. The book of Amos, um, you might remember Amos chapter 8, he is given a vision of summer fruits, the last fruits this time of the year. God gives him, shows him a basket and he says, I see summer fruits, the things that we harvest down here. And God said, yeah, that's right. Because I'm going to bring an end to my people. Oh, that's a bit negative. But it's also a time of last harvest. So it's a time of great rejoicing. It has, again, this bittersweet element. It is a time of final rest. Because this ceremony, or this week, is actually more than a week. It's eight days. The first day was the Shabbat. And the eighth day was a Shabbat. What was God saying? He's saying the eighth day, new beginning, eternal rest. And eternal rest is promised in this rehearsal as God shows through the Feast of Booths. God's people live with him, not in temporary shelters, but in an enduring, incorruptible city, pointing towards a heavenly Jerusalem, a new heavens and earth, the eternal dwelling of God, rehearsed in the old, finding substance thanks to the work of Jesus in the new. Chad? What? hope you've enjoyed today's message. Remember to check us out at baysidechurch.org.au and of course if you're ever in the area please pop in and say good day.